This is Grain, a podcast where we believe our souls should be fed as much as we feed our stomachs. Each episode brings in a new guest who will share stories and perspectives from their own lived-out lives. Grain aims to remind us of the commonality we have, living as human beings among other human beings on this earth. I am your host, DB, your typical Singaporean passionate about Singaporean food and culture. But like you, I'm just finding my own footing in this fast-paced city of ambition. A huge curiosity I've had for a while is in people who we may never encounter in our daily routine. These are stories that remain peripheral to us as we are caught up in our own separate lives. In this series, we'll be interacting with several individuals on their experiences of living as a visually handicapped person in Singapore. Most of us have never had the chance to interact with a blind person. Because of this, we may be cautious or even unsure how to approach a blind person in public. We hope that this grain will feed your soul today. Today, we have with us Hong Sen. Hong Sen is passionate about technology and how it can be used to help other visually handicapped individuals in their day-to-day lives. He attained a diploma in IT, and most recently, a Bachelor of Science in Management and Digital Innovation. He is also an advocate for guide dogs in Singapore, and owns a guide dog named Claire, whom you might have seen starring in a few informative videos with Hong Sen. He was most recently in an ad which informed the public on how to interact with the visually handicapped while commuting on public transport. This is part two of a two-part episode. In this part, Hong Sung will share with us his experiences with owning and handling his guide dog, Claire. Green. Alright, so we're going to be moving on to a topic on guide dogs. So Claire is your uh, personal guide dog who is... Is she a golden retriever? She's actually a Labrador. She's a Labrador, I see. Yeah. And you've had Claire for how many years now? Um, four and a... No, sorry, not four and a half. That's her age. Two and a half. Oh, she's about four and a half years old, but you've had her for two and a half. Yes. So, because they usually they start working at about two years old. Do you have to go through like a very like stringent like program, training program kind of thing? Then they can actually serve as a guide dog? The dog goes through a very stringent program. For ourselves, it's more like learning on the job, actually. Mm. So, the whole process goes something like on the dog side, they get born to a guide dog litter. The parents can't be guide dogs themselves. So what happens is that a litter of puppies, they will pick the best dogs to be the breeding dogs. Then the remaining, they will test them to see if they are suitable to be guide dogs. So the best dogs become the breeding dogs that, you know, produces litter of puppies. The guide dogs, potential guide dogs rather, they go through aptitude testing to make sure that they meet certain requirements. So they must be able to socialize, must not be aggressive, you know, and a few other tests, uh, basically, to, to just make sure that they are suitable. The guide dog puppies that are selected from the aptitude test, they will go through one year or so of socialization. So puppy raisers will raise the dogs. They will bring them out to public places. They will let them interact with humans or other dogs, other animals. They will expose them to, like, our daily environment. So by then, they should be about one and a half years old or so. 
they will return to guide dog training school to be trained to be a guide dog. So that that part takes about twenty weeks, I think. So when that is done, the guide dog is certified as a guide dog. On the human side, before they become handlers, their profile will be submitted to the guide dog school. So how it works in Singapore is that the Singapore doesn't have a breeding facility. The dogs from at least from guide dogs Singapore, they are from Australia. That's the main source of guide dogs for Singapore. So the human profile will be sent to the guide dog school and they will match it to a suitable dog. So they match based on characteristics like say walking speed. You know, is this human a fast walker or slow walker? And how active is their lifestyle? Are they more very sedentary, just work in the office? Or are they more active and they have to travel to new places, different places? So based on these requirements, they will look for the dogs with the right traits. So once the guide dog is ready, the handler is paired with the dog. And the handler goes through three weeks of training. So for myself, when Claire was ready, she was brought over to my place. So before we are officially paired, they need to make sure that you are a suitable pair. When you walk together, are there any issues? So when they find that, okay, it's actually suitable, we can then proceed with training. For myself, Claire came over to stay over the weekend. It was an interesting experience, I guess, yeah. Totally new to, to all this, yeah. It's like the furry thing walking around your house. <laughs> the furry thing wasn't walking around my house. That's, that's, that's more of the thing. I wouldn't have minded if she walked. She just like lay down in the living room and not move. Didn't want to drink water, didn't want to play, didn't want to do anything. So I was like, hmm, am I doing something wrong or like, how, how do I handle this thing that I'm responsible for for the next, I don't know, eight years or so? A bit daunting. So this three weeks of training allows us to understand the dogs better. It's a lot on bonding. So you stand the dog, you hold a guide dog harness. So how do you start moving? You tell the dog to move forward and swing your right arm forward, point in front and say forward. But now does the dog want to listen to you? For my case, it's no lah, you know. Oh man, Claire is, uh, even now? Now she's fine, now she's fine. Now now we are definitely a lot more in tune with each other. We know what we want to do. We know how our lives are supposed to go, how we walk and everything. At the start, it's just kind of like, you tell her to move, she'll just refuse to move for whatever reason. So she started off walking really fast. It was just like, yeah, good. Now I can walk faster. Then eventually, she just like, didn't want to walk fast at all. Just walked like, really slowly. So temperamental. <laughs> yeah, she's, she, she used to be very temperamental. She's a bit better now. So basically, it's a very common thing like, from my understanding for the handler to understand the dog, for the dog to understand the handler. The dogs, they understand speech, but to them it's just noise. It's not really... They don't care if you say find seats for multiple people or find a seat for myself. Or do you mean seats as in I should sit now? Like, you know, that kind of thing. So it's based on context and what's going on and you guess a bit, you guess a bit. You just do what you can and, you know. Yeah, it's just a bond. So it takes a while. After three weeks, we are qualified as a guide dog team. So once we are qualified, we can travel independently. But uh, for this whole thing to work well, for everybody to understand each other, it really takes much longer than that. I would say it takes what, about a year before we can work perfectly. So is it true that when you put a guide dog harness on a dog, it becomes a bit more obedient or work-centered? Yes, yeah, so basically the dog knows that they are in working mode when they are in harness. We guide dogs themselves, they are very well-behaved dogs to begin with. So putting on the harness just makes them more serious. Right. They won't get distracted. Honestly, I think it's a dog-dependent thing. And I think I'm pretty lucky in that sense. She is very clear when she's in work mode. 99% of the time, she wouldn't really mm. get distracted, like, I would say. One way you can tell that they are guide dogs is, of course, the harness. 
Although I always say that the way that they behave, their temperament quite clearly shows that they are not your pet dogs. If you need a physical thing to see, yes, the harness. They have a harness sleeve, which is this sign that we put on a harness that says, uh, do not distract guide dog at work. Uh, it used to say, do not pet me, I'm working. But I, I think I, I provided a feedback that, yeah, they don't really need to pet your dog to distract the dog. And most of the time, petting is the least of my concern. Because for myself, you pet a dog, like, the dog doesn't really get distracted. And of course, it's not something that we should try. Like, just like, we buy insurance, but we don't really tr- see if the insurance company, are they going to honor it? So a lot of people in public, what they do is they just make sounds. They call the dog, they whistle, they make sounds with their mouth, they bark. They stop in front of the dog to pet the dog, kind of thing. Were there any like funny moments or you know a peculiar thing that happened when you were in public with Claire? I think it's really how people perceive guide dogs. You can hear some parents telling their kids, oh, see, the dog is bringing out the uncle for a walk. Also, there are people who ask me, like, um, does your dog help you to find items that you drop on the ground? And that is actually a valid question, because I know some of the dogs in America, they, they are trained to do that. So unfortunately for my case, not really. She doesn't. She doesn't really care. I mean, yeah. <laughs> this lady was like, oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so does she get your keys? Let's say you want to leave her house. Like, can I tell her to get your keys for you? And, you know, <laughs> sure. I was like, no, no, she doesn't do that. Like, We mentioned like uh, dogs, they shouldn't be distracted when they're working. So sometimes I, I do say it's fine. If let's say people ask me, I say, it's like I'm not doing anything. I'm not walking or anything. I, I'm usually fine with people petting my dog. But of course, ask me before, beforehand, you know, so I know what's going on. So this lady was like, oh, can I pet your dog at the MRT station? It's like, okay, can, sure, go ahead. She was told she was petting her dog, asking questions, and we were talking. So she took the train with me, and we alighted at the same stop. So she was on the travelator, looking at the dog, and she was standing backwards. So she kind of like tripped when she reached the end of the travelator. So I think that's just like how distracted people can be sometimes. On this episode of Green, Hong Sen shares with us his experiences in owning and handling his guide dog, Claire. So I heard that there are a total of 8 guide dog users in Singapore and that you are the youngest handler. Is that true? Um, not quite. When I started off, I was the 8th guide dog team in Singapore. I was the youngest handler, Claire was the youngest dog. So during this period, there were some changes. One of the independent teams retired and there was a new independent team. And that was I think last year. Cassandra, if you have heard of her. Yeah, Cassandra, she, she has a guide dog now. So her dog is younger than Claire. And this year, just, just like a mm, few weeks ago, only a couple weeks ago, we have another guide dog team. So now I'm not the youngest handler and Claire is like the third youngest dog or something. So the thing here is that there are still eight active guide dog teams in Singapore. Why do you think there are so few guide dog handlers in Singapore? I think there are a few factors. Firstly, the number of guide dogs that we can get access to are not a lot as well. Due to cost, the Guide Dog Singapore, they are a charity organization. They need funds to get dogs. So that's one limitation. I think this is more of the issue here is uh, the number of people who want guide dogs are also not a lot. The numbers are actually going. There is a short waiting list right now. People waiting for guide dogs. But still, it's not a lot. So if you were to think about the number of guide dog teams in Singapore as compared to the total number of blind people in Singapore, it's quite a big gap because access issues are still there. Technically, we say we can go into shopping malls. And that is true now. Like When I first started, there were still some rough patches and some restaurants, they'll still turn you away. It's getting more uncommon now, I guess. 
but it still happens sometimes. And I think guide dogs, they just like any kind of dogs, they actually require quite a lot of commitment. And in fact, more, because the way they are trained is rather different from a housebroken pet dog. You know, their toileting must be done outdoors on grassy areas or, or maybe patches of soil or sand. They need to be toileted every few hours. You need to be responsible to bring them down. They need to be kept clean in top condition because they go into public areas. So you don't want people to complain about you. Right? So you need to brush them every day. Make sure they're clean. Make sure they do not smell. Make sure they are in good health. So the guide dog, the food that they eat also needs to be higher quality. Just to make sure that they can stay healthy for longer. They go through more stresses in life, I guess, because they need to be responsible to keep themselves safe and also to keep the handlers safe. So they have a lot of responsibility on their hand or on their paw. Do you feel that they are actually like, you know, conscious of their responsibility as a guide dog? I would think that actually different guide dogs would react differently. Like for Claire herself, she knows to keep me safe. She knows that she is guiding, but I don't think she's too stressed out about it. It's just something that she does and she gets rewarded for it, maybe with some treat or to get praised. Yeah, it's just something like that. So it's not like humans whereby we feel like, oh, I, I need to make sure that my guide dog is kept clean and healthy and make sure she doesn't get into any problems, you know, that kind of thing. So you're mentioning about places uh, where guide dogs and handlers can access. Which locations in Singapore are actually accessible to guide dogs? Or to put it another way, like which areas are actually not accessible to guide dogs? Our legislation actually says that guide dogs are allowed in all public places, shopping malls, food establishments, even into halal establishments as well. They differentiate the differences between guide dogs and normal dogs. As for public transport, guide dogs are definitely allowed on trains and buses. Taxi companies, they are usually pretty open as well. For Grab and Gojek, it's more dependent on the drivers themselves. They do not say that we are not allowed but it's up to the individual drivers to respond as to whether they want to take or not. They have the right to reject. Because unlike other countries, we don't really have any legislation against discrimination of people with disabilities. We have the law to say that we are allowed, but there's no enforcement to it. It's still up to an individual's discretion whether they want to allow you in their vehicle or anything. Yeah, I mean, you talk about a restaurant. What if the law says that you're allowed? doesn't matter if the restaurant, the, the manager doesn't want you to be there. You can stand there and bring out your points about, yeah, these are guide dogs, they're especially trained, they're well-behaved, they do not bark, they do not bite, they do not toilet anywhere. It's a matter of whether can you convince them. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, yeah. The short answer of where guide dogs and their handlers go to, the answer is everywhere, I guess. Any places we are not allowed. Not really, there isn't. In theory, that's the case. In practice, it's a bit different, lah. So I was actually having a chat with another guide dog user like some time back and he recounted to me an event which occurred when he was taking the bus with his guide dog. He walked up the bus with his guide dog, he took a seat on the reserved seating and then like a few stops later, a man like boarded the bus and like, you know, started taking pictures of him and making a commotion that dogs should not be allowed on the bus because they may bite small children. And, you know, he even lodged a complaint to the bus captain and everything that he just went back to sit down without like apologizing or anything. I know this would not be like, you know, an everyday scenario for all guide dog users, but, you know, with your experience with your guide dog and everything so far, what's your opinion on this, like, situation? In 2019 alone, I think I was, like, on social media and kind of, like, yeah, on the internet for bringing my guide dog onto, mm. like, public transport. Earlier last year, it was on a train. Yep. Someone was asking, 
how come guide dogs are not on train? And I think later last year, someone also posted about me taking bus with Claire. It's not common, but it's also not that uncommon, honestly. Because we do hear a lot of comments about, oh, well, why is there a dog here? Yeah, there are people who will go to the bus captain and ask, oh, how can you allow a dog on the bus? There are also bus captains who ask you, why are you bringing a dog on the bus? Getting rarer, I would say, but it, it happens sometimes, yeah. I think it has to happen a bit more for them to realize. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit hard to balance this whole thing, you know. Like, how, how do you balance this equation? Yeah, majority of the people, majority of the population, majority of the drivers, of the people in the public service sector, they are aware of what is going on. They know what guide dogs are. But is this, is this situations whereby, oh, do you know that somebody posted about you taking a trip with a dog? I was like, no, why would they do that? It's just exhausting to hear comments. Okay, so basically for myself, like sometime in the end of last year, I also had this situation whereby I boarded the bus. The driver was asking me, how can you bring your dog on the bus? So I told him, it's a guide dog. And I, I think that day I was irritated, honestly. So I was like, yeah, do we have any issues with that? Right, because SBS says that I can bring the dog on the bus. No, I said, oh, wait, it's, it's allowed, it's allowed. I said, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a dog that's a dog on the bus. You want to go and check with your company or something? Yeah. Okay, then he didn't say much. I just moved on. Right after that, one of the commuters, one of the passengers on the bus was like, wait, wait, how can you bring a dog on the bus? So I literally just told them that, yeah, well, I'm blind, you know, I can't see. So this dog is helping me. Because I was sitting down beside this lady and she was like, yeah, sometimes people are just not understanding and things like that. At the start, you feel very happy to share. Let's think about it this way. How, how many people know what guide dogs are? So we need to explain to them. I'm sure they will be understanding once they know what a guide dog is. And then you realize that actually, the number of people who are not aware of guide dogs, they're quite high. But explaining to them doesn't always help. They're like, yeah, sure. So now you tell, you share with me what a guide dog is. My boss still tells me that no dogs are allowed. A guide dog is a dog. It's kind of like running a brick wall sometimes to say, you can stand there and explain, 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 and then you're like, okay, but you see, it's a dog, right? It's still a pet, right? So you're not allowed. I guess people do, you know, come to a point where they care about the rules too much. They forget that, you know, like, it's just people also who are important sometimes. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's not even about how much they care about the rules. I mean, I do agree with you on that. We should actually be more sociable and we should look at things in a bigger picture. But the thing is, if you care about the rules so much, the rule says I'm allowed. So why are you stopping me now? Yeah, I mean, on a more positive note, it's just that sometimes there are still comments. Why are dogs allowed here? What is different from before is that such questions like why are dogs allowed here are usually accompanied by answers like, oh, there's a guide dog to help blind people. So the dog is helping. I think more and more we are hearing these answers. And it's great when the answers are not coming from you, it's coming from a member of the public, you know. It's, it's getting more and more common. So I think that's something that I, I really appreciate. And, you know, like I said, I've started work. My workplace has no issues with my guide dog at all. My colleagues, they are fine. I travel to work, I travel home. In this one month plus, uh, I have not faced any issues. A lot of us, you know, maybe it used to be like, we face an issue on average of every two months. Now you might be every six months. This is Green, a podcast where we believe our souls should be fed as much as we feed our stomachs. Today we have with us Hong Sen, who is a guide dog user and user experience designer. We hope that this Green will feed your soul today. Today, 
why not just use a cane? Like, you know, why go through the trouble of, uh, you know, handling a guide dog, you know, taking care of the guide dog and everything. And maybe you could give us like a few scenarios of why using a guide dog would be more advantageous than using a white cane. There are advantages to using a guide dog as compared to a white cane. The reverse is true as well. There are advantages of using a white cane as compared to a guide dog. So I think it's just a choice. The white cane is just a stick. Well, it's actually more than just a stick. But, you know, it helps you to feel what's in front of you. You swing on the ground. It tells you what kind of terrain you are on. It hits any obstacles in front of you so you are aware. You are in control, you know, as to how fast you want to walk. You get a lot of information from the white cane. You can use it to throw the wall to find an opening. You can use it to look out for steps. It's a really useful mobility tool. I also feel like, you know, maybe the white cane is almost like a symbol in a sense. When they see the white cane, they recognize, okay, you're blind, so maybe I'll give more compassion or something. You're right about that. It's actually more of a symbol as well. A lot of people recognize this. For a guide dog, the way that the guide dog works is quite different. One common term we use to describe guide dogs and white canes is that a white cane is an obstacle detector. A guide dog is an obstacle avoider. So the guide dog helps you to see and it just guides you through a route, avoiding any obstacle, alerting you of those obstacles that they can't avoid. Like say, for example, steps. But you are not in charge of, uh, say, planning out the exact route. Or rather, you do need to plan that, but you you are not in charge of, say, avoiding people, avoiding crowds or railings. Because a white cane user, you know, we we need to swing the cane and, okay, there's a, there's a railing here. So we need to walk past this railing, walk past this barrier, walk past this, you know, signboard. The guide dog sees it ahead of time, they walk you around it, and you don't even know you avoided something. Or crowds, the guide dog can bring you in and out of the crowd quite easily, whereas the white cane, you might hit people's legs and things like that. So, the thing about guide dogs is that you do not get as much information from the guide dog as you get from the cane. So a lot of times when a cane user travel, they use a lot of sensory inputs coming through the cane to help them to decide. Okay, the tile flooring has changed to concrete flooring. This means that steps are going to be like just six steps in front of me and I should be aware and it's just a slowing down. Or, now this is a carpeted area, so the lift will be to my right soon. These are still things that the, you can sort of tell with a guide dog, but it's not through an additional mobility aid, it's just through your feet. You feel the things, the terrain has changed. And you know, sometimes the way we walk, we, we don't really feel. We feel something, but it's not as useful as a white cane. Because a white cane is constantly on the ground, your feet is not. Yeah. So you need to base on other senses, like sense of hearing, which cane user does as well. Cane user also based on like you know, their sense of hearing. Maybe some people have a bit of like light perception, they use the, the lighting light level to help them to identify landmarks and such. So all these are at our disposal to, to help us to determine where are we traveling. So the guide dog user will actually be in a directing role. Like I'll walk out of my house, I'll tell Claire left, then I'll tell her something like find left, find the steps. So she'll find the steps on the left or find the seat. So this is how I travel with Claire. With a cane, I'll come to my house, I know to turn left. Then I know the path of me is straight, so I just trail the wall, use my hand or use my cane to trail the wall on the left. And when it opens up, I know there are steps. So there are steps, I'll just go down the steps perhaps. While with Claire, she'll find the steps and then she'll stop. So I tell her Claire forward and then she'll, she'll go forward. So she will stop at steps. She'll stop when she finds something to, to indicate to you that, that this is something that you need to take note of. So the way we walk is, is different basically. You know, cane, 
more more in control, maybe a bit smoother, not as fast. It's more purposeful in a sense. Guide dog perhaps a bit more efficient. You do things in bursts because some of the dogs can go quite fast. It's quite a long answer, but I guess to to put it short, it's just basically it's a choice. Advantages in canes and in guide dogs, they they are they are there. It's just a matter of what lifestyle do you have? Do you want to take out the commitment of having a guide dog? Because canes, they don't really need, need any maintenance or anything like that. So it's a choice, basically, that they make to maybe get a better quality of life for some people. Some people might not find guide dogs suitable. Okay, now we're going to go through some common misconceptions that people have about guide dogs. So the first misconception is that guide dogs are usually big dogs, and if you pet them or touch them, they might bite you. Yeah, that, that's obviously a misconception. Though. And mm. I think oftentimes people confuse guard dogs and guide dogs. Right. I hear in public car dogs, oh, that is a guard dog. No, that's not a guard dog. She, she hardly does guard duty. She doesn't really care. <laughs> yeah. mm. So, yes, uh, they are big because they do have to be of a certain size. You can't really get a poodle, a toy poodle to be a guide dog because they'll just be kicked around by, by people who can't see them. You know, like, yeah, our society now, this is just like we are all looking at our phones. Even with such a big dog, people can walk into me, you know. So you need a dog to be a certain size to be able to direct you, to be able to go through crowds, to be able to push through things. So guide dogs, yeah, that's, that's, that's why they, they have a certain size. But no, they are Labradors, Golden Retrievers. These are really one of, the, one of the friendliest breeds of dogs, I would say, yeah. So the second misconception about guide dogs is that guide dogs cannot play with other dogs. Yeah, that's not quite true as well. They are at work when they are on harness. That's when they can't play. But when they are off harness, they usually interact quite well with other dogs. The next misconception is that guide dogs can tell you when to cross the street. Guide dogs don't tell us when to cross the street. So that is up to the handler to make the decision when to cross the street. Hmm. What the guide dog does, however, is that they can stop you from crossing the street if they feel it's unsafe. There's this idea of intelligent disobedience, which is that they intelligently disobey you. You have given a command, I have heard the command, but I just don't think it's safe, so I'm not going to take the first step. Yeah, because they are intelligent, they, they do think as well, so if they see that there are cars coming, they will not cross the road. Yeah. The last thing here was that, you know, guide dogs can actually remember a lot of places, almost like, you know, GPS. So you kind of tell them where you want to go, and then they can bring you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is half true, actually. I see. Guide okay. dogs, they really remember a lot of places. Mm, okay. Their, their memory is really very surprising. Hmm. Like, uh, one story I can share is I usually I go for my haircut near my place. There was this one time after my haircut, we went to a coffee shop for lunch. I was walking with Claire and I told her, Claire, find a seat. So she found me a seat at the coffee shop. So we sat down, we had our lunch. The subsequent few times, usually after my haircut, as we walk past the coffee shop, she will always find back the same seat for me to sit. Oh, wow. <laughs> So sometimes like some MRT stations that we passed through mm. like, quite a while ago, we come back, you realize that, oh, oh, she still can remember the route quite well. It's quite a surprising thing. But again, they remember routes, they have good memory, doesn't really mean that they, are, they, they know where exactly this space is. Like. I can't give her directions like, oh, Claire, find the McDonald's at Nobudok Mall, or Claire, uh, go to go to, uh, go to next, you know? Yeah, so it's kind of like, they remember places, but they are not GPS, because... They don't really associate a place with a specific word or common. I suppose we can teach them, but that's, that doesn't make a lot of sense because a lot of roots, you know, they overlap. So one thing about guide dog work is that the way they walk is actually broken down into small chunks. That's why I do not say Claire, find school. Claire, go to work. It's more like Claire, find the lift, 
turn left, right, up the steps, that kind of thing. So we break this whole route down into smaller components and then we work from there. In that sense, actually a lot of the routes will overlap. The route that you take to work and the route that you go to a restaurant to have dinner might actually be similar to the dog, right, anyway, because you need to find the bus stop. You take the same bus. You go to the MRT station, except at the MRT station, you don't go in the MRT station. Instead of turning left in the MRT station, you turn right to go to the mall. So the dog, actually, they are quite similar routes. So they actually remember more of landmarks, yeah. I see, yeah. In the end, they're still up to the handler to actually recognize the surroundings or, say, depend on an app to guide him or her to a place, is it? Yeah, so the basic idea is mental mapping. Visually impaired people, we usually have a mental map of where things are located in relation with each other and that's how, how we travel as we walk as we look out for landmarks maybe like escalators or doorways cafes or, or whatever shops due to sounds that they produce the smell the terrain is it carpeted or tiled or something like that like I was talking about previously so based on that we have an idea of where we are going how, that's how we keep track as well this is Green, a podcast where we believe our souls should be fed as much as we feed our stomachs. We hope that this grain will feed your soul today. So you mentioned that while a guide dog is working, we should not disturb the dog at all. We should not like call it for its attention. We should not distract it and everything. So when is actually a good time for us to, say, pet dog, uh, interact with you or the dog? So usually if you see the dog, and the handler are like sitting down somewhere, you know. Yeah, <laughs> like Claire. Yeah, yeah, she's scratching her, her bit now. So usually when we see like guide dog handlers resting know, at rest, where the dog is like lying down and the handler is sitting down, usually they are, it's pretty safe to assume that they are not working. Or maybe if you see them standing somewhere, you know, you can always approach and ask like, oh, can, can I pet your dog or something like that. Mm, yep. So that's how we know that it's safe, that it's the dog will not be distracted. But um, I think it's pretty safe to say that it's better not to assume and just ask the handler because some handlers, they, you know, they might not like the dog to be distracted. Some handlers are stricter than others. Or maybe strict is not the best way to describe it. Some handlers, they have their own way of functioning. Yeah. They might not like their dog to be petted by others when they're in harness at all. They don't like that kind of thing. So it's just best to just approach the handler, ask, oh, can I pet your dog? If, or can I take a picture of your dog? I mean, there are people who, who, who does that, but they, they will ask. I see. Say if you meet Claire in public, right? Is it okay for us to give Claire treats? Okay, usually we will say no. Because uh, the guide dog, usually they have very strict diets. They, they should not be just fed like anyhow, like, really. You can ask the handler. Maybe sometimes they, they will allow you to feed the dog. Treats usually are associated with like things you know, to be rewarded. Say she works very well. She found a landmark or she performed it like, really, really well. She gets rewarded with a treat. So we don't want to, you know, devalue treats. Uh. If let's say I get treated like anyhow, anywhere, they don't really see the value in it anymore. But of course, sometimes when the dogs are off harness and when they're relaxed, maybe they're at home, we do treat our dogs for certain tricks that they, they might perform, that kind of thing, you know? So again, yeah, the best thing is just to ask the handler, I would say. But it's never, it's, it's not really advisable to just feed guide dogs, working guide dogs, treats, without checking with the handlers, yeah. If we're in public and we see a guide dog handler who seems to be in need of help, 
How can we approach such a situation? It's the same as a cane user, actually. Because guide dogs or canes, they pretty much can't see. The difference is that guide dogs usually are trained to walk on the left side of the handler. So if, let's say, you would like to offer assistance to a blind person, maybe to guide them, it needs to be on the right. It's never a good idea to pull the guide dog and the handler by the guide dog harness or the leash. Similarly, it's also not good to actually guide a blind person by holding their white cane. Because the white cane is supposed to be always on the ground, it's a bit disorientating to get your cane pulled and then it's just like you, you can't really feel what's ahead of you anymore. So usually offer them your, your arm or you can hold them if you, if you feel more comfortable. Although again, this is you know, preference of individual blind people as well. Yeah, I think that's about it. Lah. Just don't hold the harness, don't hold canes, don't pull the leash. Go on the right side of the guide handler. So to wrap things up, to what extent do you feel that the voices of the visually handicapped community are being heard by our society as a whole? I think the voices are being heard. But I do think that it's also an individual thing as well. Not all voices are being heard equal. Not all voices have a chance of being heard. So I guess, at least on the community part, you should find a way to have a certain understanding of everyone's needs. So, you know, when there's a chance to be voiced out, everyone can play a part in that. And I think the other part of this whole thing is also who is doing the hearing of the voices, you know, and how much do they really understand what they are hearing from, say, visually impaired people. I think that's, that's also quite a big part as well. So sometimes there is this tendency to push their own views on the matter. They already have a preconception of what things are supposed to be like. They already have an idea of how things are supposed to be like, how things work. And based on their own ideas, based on their own experience, they just assume that they are right in a sense. And in fact, I'm not saying experience and preconceptions are, they are, they are not necessarily bad things. But I think it's also good to just hear the different voices, then make a decision on how things should be handled, how things should be done, you know. Because ultimately, there are still different individuals with different needs, with different lifestyles. Maybe in the past, that there weren't a lot of chances to get our voices heard. Part of it is also because no one is requesting to hear these voices as well from the visually handicapped community. So now there's more dialogue going on. I think, yeah, that, that's a pretty good sign. So to summarize, would you say that you know there is still a big room for improvement, but compared to 10 years ago, we have already come quite a long way. Yeah, 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 definitely. Things are changing, times are changing. People are more open now, they are more willing to understand more. Openness is the key to all this. Openness, communication to build a society that is friendly for all. This episode of Green would not have been possible without support from Quackbin and Candice. You can find more podcasts on our website www.green.community or on Spotify and other mainstream podcasting platforms. Do follow us on Instagram and Facebook at green.community for new updates on podcasts and also little nuggets of soul food. I'm your host DB and I hope that this green will feed your soul today.